Right now on Last Call, coming for Tesla's crown, how a top Chinese EV maker just put Elon Musk on notice, and maybe even the entire American auto industry. They love gold. The metal striking yet another record high. Is it still a time to buy? Open season on open AI. Will a New York Times lawsuit upend the AI boom? A feast of fees. If you think the cost of your food delivery is skyrocketing, you're not crazy. What do you see? Some of the numbers. Plus, America's best and worst airports. We're going to break down some new rankings. And... That is what happens when you turn five bucks into nearly half a million dollars. The New Jersey sports gambler who scored a hit of a lifetime is here, and he'll tell you who he's picking next and what he's going to do with the money. All that and more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. That's going to be a fun one with a sports gambler. I'm Brian Sullivan, by the way. I was not that guy. All that and more ahead. But first up on last call, another day, another Dow record. The blue chip index closing at an all time high today. Since remember, if you're at a high and you go up, it's a new high because math. The S&P 500 is inching closer toward its own record. If you're keeping score at home, and you probably should be. The 500 is now just 0.7% away from its all-time high. And get this, the NASDAQ on pace for its best yearly gain in 20 years. But here's the weird part about this amazing run. According to Apollo Investments, a record 72% of stocks in the S&P 500 have actually underperformed the index this year. I mean, basically, people have been buying the winners and seemingly ignoring most other stocks. But that may be changing. Case in point, the small caps. They have maybe been the story on Wall Street in the last month or so. The Russell 2000 small cap index on pace for its best month in more than three years. One of the small caps making big gains is some company called Anywhere Real Estate. The ticker is HOUS. It's up 65% in a month. Same story with Hudson Pacific Properties, whoever that is. They're up 70% over the same time. And biotech company Cytokinetics says, hold my beer, they're up 162% in the past 30 days. Nearly the entire small cap index has been running wild. In fact, there are only 39 names in the small cap 600 that have declined over the last 30 days. So with just two trading days left of the year, should investors like you bet big on the small caps heading into next year? Let's talk about it with our leadoff panel. we got G-Squared, Private Wealth Founding Partner and CIO Victoria Green and Founder and CIO of Seymour Asset Management and CNBC Fast Money Trader, Tim Seymour. Welcome. Hey, Tim, you know, I know you guys, even on the hey, 5 o'clock, Fast Money, have been hitting on the small caps a lot more lately. But is this just one of these head fakes because people don't know what else to do with their money? Or is there there's something a little more maybe to this longer term? Well, first of all, great to be here, Brian. Glad you listened to me to not wear a tie tonight. I mean, this is this is the week. And and uh, Biggie Smalls, Biggie Smalls. I know you're a big fan of Mr. Smalls, and it really has been a case for the small caps. If you think about it, since that CPI in November, the November 13th CPI, small caps have outperformed the S&P by 12%. And, and so, you know, we've talked about the broadening of the market. 
But the equal weighted S&P is only up 3% during that time. So it's really, it, it is a time for small caps. To me, it's it's risk aggression. It's it's after a 35% underperformance to the S&P from March of 21. And by the way, that's when not only a lot of, a lot of high multiple stocks, SPACs, uh, the ultimate risk grabbing kind of began, to, and even cannabis stocks, which I know, it, you know, we're starting to um, fall from lofty heights back in March of 21. That's where you saw a 35% underperformance of small caps to the S&P. So um, does it continue? Uh, first of all, you have a great combination right now for markets where the leadership of that MAG-7, uh, it, it does continue. You're making relative highs on semis as we go into year end. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is lower rates, lower dollar. This is a setup that works for small caps for now. It's, it's not, you know, to me, the issues that people had with the economy that they were worried about that never came are coming at some point in 24. And that's going to be bad for small caps. Well, you know, sometimes your words just just hypnotize me, Tim. That's just how it goes. <laughs> I knew I knew that you was knew. coming. That's <laughs> why we teed you up. You know, we got to do it. And you made it easy on me tonight. You didn't do some like some big star Alex Chilton type thing out of the blue. But that's for next time. No. Victoria Green, are you a believer or a believer? Are you a believer? Are you a buyer? <laughs> <laughs> are you a buyer of the small caps? Yeah, they're playing catch up still. If you look at them, you back those nice charts out. They're still playing catch up year to date. They've underperformed. That was one of the big complaints about this market rally. Small caps hadn't confirmed. Usually when you're coming out of a bear market, the smalls and the, and the, the junk rally the best. And that was a big complaint about this rally so far. It was, you know, like you pointed out, there was seven, eight, nine stocks working, everything else not so much. And that's still been true for the S&P. Those top 10 stocks have contributed 75% of their returns, but small caps are paying catch up. And right now it's risk on. So pedal to the metal. I do believe the wheels on this bus will fall off at some point in 24, but you cannot deny with all of this breath improving, with where we are seasonality, with what the charts are saying, right now it's risk on in, in the markets and small caps have a little bit more room to run. I would I would build my parlay around the small mm -hmm. caps right now. Nice. A, a good deep tease for that later segment. You know, Tim, I talked to somebody in the hedge fund community today and they were talking about all this leverage that has come into the market, that the interest rate trade is sort of within, I don't want to go into the technical weeds, piled all this leverage of quantitative hedge funds into the markets. And I'm listening to this. I'm thinking that's great in the near term. But but I, I do wonder how much more sort of gasoline this Fed pivot has for the stock market fire. It's I know rates have come down. We're at three, seven, eight on the 10 year. It's been a huge turn. But I just know that most things don't last forever. I don't know. Well, the, the, the dynamics, again, around whether it's quants or whether it's CTAs, which tend to be momentum chasers, and we won't get into that crazy weird stuff. We'll just speak in English here. Um, there is more flow into the market from folks that have to chase this kind of a move. And, and then you've had, and I think you've probably seen it, we've all heard about the retail flows and the passive flows that have been chasing a more equal weighted S&P. Uh, we've been getting this reaffirmed by you know, Bank of America's fund manager surveys, stuff like that. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the sequencing for the economy that is taking a lot longer to play out in terms of both the labor market and some of the impact of 500 basis points of rate hikes um, is, is, to me, also a very good sign for the market that's broadening here and small caps. Now, as someone that's been investing in, in emerging markets and global markets, we used to often use the IWM or the small cap ETF mm -hmm. as a hedge for emerging markets. And, and you did that because they're very closely correlated in terms of their sensitivity to interest rates and the dollar. 
Um, the dollar peaked really at least uh, for a lot of this move in, in uh, um, you know, last summer, but maybe, you know, 107 ish on the dollar index recently. But it was it was also March of 21, May of 21, when the dollar went on a 25 percent move higher. And all of that was a function of the Fed. Um, we have less Fed in 24. There's no question about it. Whether 150 basis points of Fed funds cuts that we have out to December of next year are happening, I don't think so. And if they do happen, that's terrible for small caps. Let's just be clear. Mm -hmm. um, small caps are not going to rally if we're in a massive, massive growth scare, enough so that the Fed is cutting. That's not what we have here. And it is a catch-up trade. And I believe you can stay there. Yeah, very quickly, Victoria. They're not pure small caps, but there's two names. We like opportunity here heading into the new year. Mid-caps, Qantas Services and Wellspring. Why those two? Yeah. Well, Wellspring, you got to love the REITs if it's going to have rate cuts. Like, do not forget where the REITs are. They are one of the main beneficiaries of this. Well Tower is a senior living REIT, also a little bit more protected. We got a lot of people hitting that 65-year-old plus and, and not enough uh, demand. And then Quanta is just a wonderful, they're technically an industrial, but they kind of have a foot in utilities because they do so much with transmission lines and, and everything on the power side. They've got a little bit into renewables. I like that company really well done. And I think both of those benefit tremendously from falling race, even if we don't get the 150 bips, which I do agree is a little yeah. aggressive, I think investors should consider REITs and utilities right now. All right. Screwed up the name. Victoria Green, Tim Seymour. It is Well Tower, not Well Spring. But, you know, Tim, this far in the year, you can't blame me for having a little bit of arrested development. Tim and Victoria. <laughs> yes, I God bless you. God Brian. bless you. Too. Thank you for all you do um, every night. Yeah. Talk to my family. Thanks, Tim, Brian. Victoria, thank you. All right, we told you about the markets. Now let's go into the markets for your studs and duds of the day. The big run of the day, Moderna, up 3.5%. Wall Street analysts expecting a big rebound after a dismal year for both Moderna and Pfizer, the big decliner. Lithium miner, miner Albemarle, despite all the optimism around lithium-built batteries for cars, Albemarle has lost a third of its value for investors this year. Wow. All right, time for a short commercial break. We are live on Last Call, and up next, a golden run for gold. Why gold has been red hot. Plus, the Chinese EV maker about to swipe a big time crown from Tesla and it may not stop there. But should we stop it before it gets to America? Stay with us. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. And first up, an update on the Apple Watch patent saga. The company winning a court approval to start selling its latest Apple Watches again. Watch sales had been paused following a patent dispute with a company called Massimo over the watch's blood oxygen detection feature. The approval will temporarily allow sales to continue, but the U.S. Customs Office will decide whether a redesign of the technology will comply with the patents on January 12th. Apple watches make up about 5% of overall watch sales. The bottom line there is they could be paused again, depending on the federal government's ruling. Next up, this is a big story, actually. General Motors is suing the city of San Francisco. GM is reportedly trying to recover more than $100 million in back taxes. They claim that San Francisco charged it an unfairly high tax bill over seven years. GM says its cruise self-driving car unit was improperly used by the city to make the tax calculations, they argue that Cruise operates separately from GM, and GM itself only has a limited presence in San Francisco. I'm sh California overtaxing somebody? No. <laughs> Meantime, it is not just stocks that are seeing record highs. If you have not been paying attention to gold, 
You should be. Gold now around $2,100 per ounce. Now, gold bugs, they love to love gold. But others, they love to hate gold, saying it's overrated and expensive. So with all that going on, should there be maybe a little room for gold in your portfolio? Joining us now is founder and CEO of KKM Financial, Jeff Kilberg. Jeff, gold, buyer or not? Buyer still, Sully. I think everyone loves gold. Kind of like Goldmember, one of your favorite characters in Austin Powers. But what we're seeing right now, despite the fact that we're at all-time highs in gold, we're not overbought. And I'm saying that because the relative strength index, a little wonky, I know. But RSI is a way we measure overbought or oversold. And right now, it's not overbought. But what's fascinating to see that people have access to gold via GLD. That's the ETF that gives you exposure. It's been a slow, steady move higher all year. It hasn't been a parabolic move like a NVIDIA or a Meta. It's kind of like you and I running a 40-yard dash. Really slow, but it keeps on going forward. But here we are with gold making all-time highs. I think it continues to move higher, Sully. Well, the key there is do we make the actual 40-yard dash regardless of the time? <laughs> that, that aside, Jeff, what is it? Is, it? is it? Is gold, okay, inflation hedge, but inflation's coming down. Interest rate hedge and interest rates are coming down as well. If you buy physical gold, it's expensive and, and heavy, by the way, to yes. store. So, A, what's going on? And, B, how would you buy it? Like the physical metal? Go to Costco, get one of their coins, or use, the, or use the ETF. <laughs> no, I'm the ETF guy. I would not go to Costco. I love Costco. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I use Costco a lot. But I think you, you pointed out a great question, and it really is relevant because there's been a big dislocation. You would have thought that move higher in gold because people were buying for inflation protection would have happened last summer when we saw the CPI reading of inflation up over 9%. So there's a lag effect. There's a dislocation. A bigger dislocation is actually silver. Here we are with gold at all-time highs, and silver is nowhere near its all-time high. So I think you can buy GLD, but I think if you want to be more strategic and more of a trader, if you will, I think you buy SLV. That's the silver ETF because there's a reversion, a mean of the reversion play, which should allow silver to catch up to its big brother gold. But I think both of them will move higher as long as we have markets anticipating this dovishness, this big pivot that the Fed had. We all knew about the bond traders knew about it. We knew the 10 years going from 5% down to under 4%. But now there's a lag effect. And that's why you're seeing gold and silver kind of move higher. They will come back into correlation. So they've been dislocated for a couple of years, mm -hmm. but you will see them come back in concert. Well, it's perfect time of year right after Christmas because we can call that the Burr Lives trade, silver and gold. Oh, you see what, see what I did there? Jeff Kilberg. You're the best. Appreciate the best. it, my man. Happy New Year. See, see you in pal. 24. Happy All New right. Year, buddy. Still ahead. When you come at the king, you better not miss. Chinese EV maker moving fast for Tesla's throne, and that may only be the start. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Are Detroit's EV dreams about to get run over by China? Chinese automaker BYD is booming, closing in on Tesla when it comes to EV sales. Last quarter, Tesla sold only 3,400 more EVs than BYD. It is likely they will pass Tesla, and soon. So you may be sitting at home saying, who exactly is BYD? It's a good question. Well, they are a massive Chinese car maker, and they are coming in hot. That right there? is one of their cars. It's called the Yuan Plus, also known as the Atto 3 in markets outside of China. Well, this EV is not yet available in America. It is available in Mexico. Now, the cost may not be as cheap as you might think. It's actually about 45,000 US dollars equivalent 
especially given the peso's recent strength. BYD also sells plug-in hybrids, buses and trucks, not just EVs. But remember, only one month ago, Elon Musk said that Chinese automakers would dominate the auto industry. I think the Chinese car companies are extremely competitive. Um, by far, our toughest competition is in China. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who, who are out there who think that the top 10 car companies are going to be Tesla followed by nine Chinese car companies. Um, I think they might not be wrong. Now, BYD has already broken into the top 10 ranking for global auto sales, currently the only Chinese company on that list. But if Musk's prediction rings true, will Chinese automakers ultimately dominate the American EV market? Let's take it to our panel tonight. We're joined by Gerber Kawasaki President and CEO Ross Gerber and GLJ Research CEO and founder Gordon Johnson. I actually think, guys, that you don't agree on much, but I have a feeling that you should, I think, Ross, agree with Gordon on this, that BYD, whatever you may think of them and their Dolphin or Yuan Plus cars, is a threat if they, if, if they come here. Well, I, I don't look at it as a threat, per se. I think BYD is an enormously successful company and probably one of the best companies in China across the board. But it doesn't make it a threat to Tesla in that 90% or more of the people still are buying gas cars. I think the biggest threat that BYD and Tesla face is to the Fords, BMs, BMWs, the Volkswagens of the world. So I look at them as very complementary companies. They're very similar in, in a lot of ways, and, and they're both excellent companies. Gordon, would you agree? No, I, I disagree. Look, BYD, I was wrong is again. <laughs> BYD is cutting prices significantly in China. Look, in a quarter, last quarter, third quarter, where Tesla sales were actually down sequentially, I'm going to look at my notes here. Their market share in China fell nearly 220 basis points from 2Q to 3Q. And from peak in China, when their market share was 27% and 1Q of 20, it's down to 8.6%. Their market share has collapsed. But here's why. Let's focus specifically on why Tesla's market share is falling. If you look at Consumer Reports, what car, um, J.D. Power, they rank Tesla last or near last in quality. Edmunds ranks Tesla as the is only Is that what people in China read? Do people in China read this? Of course, but hear me out, hear me out. Edmunds ranks China as, uh, I'm sorry, Tesla, as the only company whose EPA-stated range, its actual real-world range for every single car is lower than its uh, EPA-stated range. So you're not getting the range. And then just the other day, um, there was a study that came out from LendingTree that stated Tesla's cars are the least safest out of all 30 yeah, cars they're they're about tested. about to have a record two, in China. 23.54 accidents per 1,000 cars. This is Tesla's so best car ever, ever in China. Yeah, yeah. The point is this. Tesla's cars are unreliable, unsafe, and don't have the mileage. We've been saying this for a long time. And what's happening is the consumer, right? The consumer is moving away from Tesla. One last point. Just today, we found out that Tesla had a number of axle failures, right? Suspension failures they knew about. Right. But Gordon, I got Gordon, I got to I got it. We're going a little bit. We're going a little bit off. We're going a little bit off the rails here, Gordon. I would I would I just want to say that's what you said is true. But GM just stopped selling its Blazer EV. Toyota had a massive recall because of further airbag issues. Every car company has recalls or as uh, don't come at me, Teslarians or over the air software updates, whatever you want to call them. Every car, Gordon, has a problem. Everybody. Well, Sally, Sally, you, you got to take and, a step And you're back. missing the, the overall point, which is this is 
not stopping well, people, people from buying Teslas but as they have a Tesla record. Okay, hold, hold on, recall, Ross. Right? Let Gordon respond to my yeah, yeah. pseudo so, rant. So, and so then so you Sally, can... I just want to address that head on. Other companies do recalls. Tesla did not do a recall. There was a whistleblower who was an employee at Tesla who basically turned over a bunch of information to Handel's block, who now Reuters now has that data, that basically stated that Tesla knew its cars had faulty suspensions and they didn't do a recall. And then Tesla's response to that was, we fixed 120,000 suspensions. The reason why that's eye-opening is because there's other cars out there, millions potentially of cars in the United mm -hmm. States where they haven't fixed the suspension or done a recall. Okay. That is a huge problem. That's putting all of we, us at we, risk. This is like my, it's like my, and I, if they're watching, I love all my, it's like my Christmas, it's family dinner at Christmas, okay? We started on one thing and sort of went over here. I, I want to, uh, I want to bring it back a little bit, Ross. What, what I want to talk about, and it's a good discussion, by the way, but I want to talk about BYD. Let me ask you a direct question, because we don't know what the labor conditions are in BYD. We don't know. The Chinese government could subsidize them. Should BYD cars even be allowed ever into the U.S. market? Well, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I, I don't think we should. But they're close not. The market. But China's not. Yeah, I know. But that's their, you know, government and their choice. America doesn't change capitalism just because we don't like a certain group of people. Right. So, like, you know, Chinese should be able to sell cars here just like everybody well, else. I don't think it's liking them. I think what I worry about is we covered the UAW strike extensively. Right. These are hardworking people in, in Detroit just trying to make a living like the middle class dream. China, BYD could be paying people $5 an hour to make a car. We could never compete with that, Ross. Right. And I think that's the government's job to set tariffs and, and policies for trade. It's not really like we should just decide not, you know, consumers also actually make this decision of whether they want to buy a Chinese car. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest factor that BYD faces, that American consumers don't want a Chinese car. So if you see like what uh, Geely did by buying Volvo and using the Volvo brand, even though it's a Chinese company, that's, I think, a much smarter strategy to breaking into Europe and the United States market. So I think the biggest risk BYD has is the fact that Americans just won't buy Chinese cars. But but keeping them out of the market isn't really, you know, capitalism. Mm. I do worry, though, Gordon. Listen, I think we said the same thing about Japanese cars in the late 60s. No one's going to buy them. They're small and cheap looking. I think we said the same thing about Korean cars, Kia and Hyundai, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. We're still saying that about French cars, and that's okay because it's accurate. But you, 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 get, you get my point, Gordon, which I wouldn't underestimate China. Do you think they should be allowed in the U.S. market? Absolutely not. And let me tell you why. Ross, Ross kind of is not focused on the specifics here. China has three key subsidies. Cheap labor. They use slave labor to manufacture a lot of their products. Artificially low, um, uh, basically borrowing costs for their banks and artificially low energy prices. Mm -hmm. That is not fair. That's not a level playing field. That's not capitalism. So to allow those cars in here and them to undercut the American auto automakers, thus killing jobs here, creating jobs over in China, I think is unfair. And, and Ross knows this, right? But we're subsidizing EVs here in the United, United States. States. They're taking yeah. subsidies away from even Tesla because they're making a lot of their batteries, um, some of their batteries in China and, and shipping those cars over here. So you got to level the playing field. You can't have guys yeah. using slave labor to make their cars and then shipping them into America. Where we have to pay competitive wages. That's not fair. That's not that, capitalism. We're going to let we're going to let it go, guys. It was a, it was a good discussion. I, I think the, the UAW fought really hard 
for these for these wage gains. And I'd hate to see it undercut by labor conditions that we don't we don't know what they are. But guys, listen, that said, really appreciate your views all year long. Thoughtful, passionate and always interesting. Ross and Gordon. Thank you, guys. If I don't talk to you, have a happy new year. Yeah, thank happy you. New year. You too. Thank yeah, you. And you too, Gordon. All right. Good to see you. There you, you go. See, we'll all get yeah. together. All right, on deck. Something happened today that could actually set back our AI dreams in a big way. What it is ahead. Plus, the new rankings are out. We're going to show you what is ranked as America's best and worst airports. All right, let's get to tonight's RBI. And tonight it's on travel, specifically ranking the best and worst airports in America. Air passenger rights company AirHelp releasing its 2023 scorecard. The criteria they use to score each airport include on-time performance, overall customer opinion, and food and shops. So let's dive in, starting with the lowest ranked five major airports in America. These are big airports. We're not going to pick some small ones out there in the sticks. All right, number five worst, Newark Liberty. Yeah, so many delays. Though I will say, the new Terminal A is very nice. Number four, a little surprising, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the FLL. Worst number three, Denver. A lot of people there complain about baggage issues. Well, they got a 6.9 out of 10 on customer opinion. Also takes about a, an hour to walk from one end to the other. Worst number two, Vegas. Oddly, despite great weather, a very poor on-time rankings, but at least there are slot machines. And the worst is San Francisco. Not scoring above an 8 out of 10 in either customer opinion, on time, or food in shops. It also takes forever sometimes to get there on the 101 to San Francisco, the SFO, dead last. But now to the winners in the highest scoring airports, according to AirHelp, number five. I think a lot of you are going to challenge this one. Is Atlanta. Really? Okay. Number four, Phoenix. Food is good. It's close to downtown. Number three, Detroit. Yeah. And if you know there, if you know Detroit's airport, you know it's massive. It's got a really cool indoor train and a lot of good sushi because of all the flights to Japan for the auto industry. Coming at number two, Seattle, Tacoma, SeaTac. Good on-time ranking, which I guess is key given that it's Boeing's home airport. And the highest-ranked big airport in America is the MSP. Minneapolis, St. Paul, scoring above an 8 out of 10 in all three categories. Good shops, good restaurants, and by the way, of course, the people they are. Minnesota nice. Congrats. Minnesota. All right. This, by the way, is really random but interesting. Those are the top Americans. Can you guess the top overall large airport in the world? Is it Dubai? Nope. Is it Singapore? Nope. It is Muscat International in Muscat, Oman. Oman. Excuse me. I should know this. Scoring an 8.54 out of 10. You go, Oman, which I heard, by the way, is lovely. In the meantime, something happened today which may be a bigger deal than the headlines make it seem. The New York Times is suing Microsoft and artificial intelligence giant OpenAI over its alleged copyright infringement and what the New York Times calls their abuse of intellectual property. The Times effectively claiming that the companies, Microsoft and OpenAI, created a business model built on, quote, mass copyright infringement. In response to the lawsuit, an OpenAI told CBC rep told CBC in part, quote, we respect the rights of content creators and owners and are committed to working with them to ensure they benefit from AI technology and new revenue models. We are surprised and disappointed with this development. We've also reached out to Microsoft for comment, but have not yet received a response. But does this lawsuit have the potential to upend OpenAI or 
artificial intelligence's growth altogether. Think about it. AI learns in part from scraping billions of pieces of information from the Internet, information many other people have worked hard on to provide. So if that information is owned by others, can the AI companies legally use it or use it without paying hefty fees? Let's take it to our next guest. Joining us tonight is Beacon CEO Jim Anderson and Yale University lecturer Joanne Lippmann, also a CNBC contributor. Uh, thank you both for coming on. First, Joanne, to you. I think, and tell me, please, if I'm wrong, that this is a much bigger deal than the headline makes it seem. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It is a huge deal, but it's not just because it's the New York Times. It is because this is sort of a first salvo. We are going to have to redefine how we think about content, how we think about fair use and copyright um, because of these great, you know, artificial intelligence um machines that we now have. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it is an, an enormous deal, not just for the news business, Brian, but you look at all content creators. You look at artists, musicians, actors, television anchors like yourself. I've seen the AI Brian, right? And <laughs> um, all of these things are being, uh, AI is being trained on all of these, all of this content. And we have to figure out yeah how it is that the content creators will be compensated. That's right. Isn't that the, the challenge, Jim? Is, is if, if all this information they're learning from is owned by somebody else, how do they learn? Yeah, I, I think you raise a great point. It, this is a big deal. And I think it's the New York Times you know, sort of taking their case to the court of public opinion here. Clearly, they're negotiating in public over this topic. And it's really the tip of a much larger iceberg. As you said, this is all dependent on data. And it's not just media. We're talking about media right now. But you think about healthcare and all of the you know, millions of radiological images that they want to analyze for early detection of can uh, cancer. You're talking about transportation. You talked about Tesla. You turn the windshield wipers on. It's a connected vehicle. All that data is going out into the ether. Yep. Who collects that? Who is able to monetize that? Who creates the hyper-local weather map? Because everybody knows now who's windshield wiper. Or, or Jim, they would have to they would have to pay everybody for every. They'd have to pay me for what I tweet. They'd have to pay you for what you write. There's no way they could pay everybody. I think and and charge enough to make it a profitable business. Certainly not what the New York Times thinks it's worth, right? Their, their case is, hey, our content's worth billions of dollars. I have to believe OpenAI thinks their content's worth something less than that. So again, this is a negotiation, and we are in uncharted territory, exactly what Joanne said. This is uncharted waters. We don't know where this is going to land. Although they could, and I, my guess is, and again, I don't know. It's very early stages, Joanne. I have a law degree, but I'm not a lawyer. I always want to say that, which is they could argue, well, you put it on the internet, it's, it's fair use. It's public domain. If you put it on the Internet, then we can scrape it. Yeah, you mentioned this fair use idea. We're going to have to be redefining that. This is almost certainly going to lead to many court cases, probably a Supreme Court decision. Um, it will be precedent setting. But by the way, I mean, I think it's really important to remember kind of the history of all of this is media companies had it made disastrous decisions early on with the Internet when we gave you know, content away for free. We allowed the platforms to control distribution. They sucked up all the advertising. Media companies have been burned and they are absolutely certain and determined not to let it happen again. Yeah, I mean, let's be let's be clear. We, we post on Twitter or X or Facebook, Jim, because we want to. I try to promote the show. I like to engage with the audience. But people, Facebook is nothing but an empty, and I'm not picking on Facebook. Facebook is nothing but an empty store and if it wasn't for the, 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 the providers of content, which is everybody watching and listening right now, Facebook wouldn't have much. 
So I think that's the idea. What is AI but for all of us? Well, and Brian, you raise a great point. I think let's, we've all seen what happens when you take a copy of a copy of a copy, right? A photocopy, it, it starts to degrade. What happens in the world of AI if that human-generated content starts being walled off and now AI is learning from AI, which is learning from AI? We're concerned about hallucinations now. I don't think we've begun to see <laughs> You're blowing my mind here, Jim. You're blowing my mind, right? It's like the scene in Animal House. like the whole universe could be in my one pinky in my finger. I mean, that's, that's it. But this is, these are the kind of things, Joanne... It's like with, with self-driving cars. Everyone's like, oh, the technology's easy, but I'm like, what about the insurance? It's always that last mile, that, that's the thing that nobody really foresees that creates some of these big stumbling blocks to technology. In this case, it might just be a lawsuit from the New York Times. Oh, I, I'm, first of all, there's going to be so many unintended consequences, and there already are. Jim mentioned the hallucinations, and that is a huge factor. I teach a journalism class, and I had my students use AI, and then I had them fact check AI, and it was remarkable. Even when you asked AI to give you footnotes, the footnotes quoting the New York Times and CNBC and other mainstream outlets would give you false information attributed to those outlets. There are so many unintended consequences that are going to flow from this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's scary, but it's relevant, and it has to be talked about, and we, and we just did. We just talked about it. Joanne Lippman, Jim Anderson, thank you both very much, guys. Happy New Year. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. All right, coming up, the next big call of my four for 24 predictions for the new year with one country's stock market maybe set to go on a tear. I'll tell you who I think it is. Plus, it is not just your imagination. Food delivery costs are soaring, and it could get even worse. Where do you hear some of these numbers coming up? All right, welcome back to Last Call. We've got another installment of the segment that we brought to you last night. Time to continue our four for 24. (laughs) It's never going to get old. Maybe it will. Maybe it's already old. All right, some of my predictions and thoughts on what could be the big stories next year. Usual disclaimer, none of these are investment advice. It's for fun and to stoke debate, discussion. You tell me when I'm wrong, when I'm wrong, whatever. Yesterday, my first prediction was that some big solar stocks would outperform the overall stock market next year. True. Today's prediction, which is number three on our list, is a bullish view on Brazil. I think the Brazilian market will outperform the United States market next year. Brazil's economy has been strong. It's expected to stay strong in the next year. The unemployment rate is now below 7%. That sounds high for us, but it's actually down from nearly 14% before the pandemic. A bet on Brazil is also kind of a sideways bet on commodities. Brazil's a huge producer of oil, iron ore, coffee, sugar, and more. The big story, though, really will be oil. Brazil has quietly become a bit of an oil superpower, producing more than three and a half million barrels per day. They're probably going to hit four million barrels per day in the near future, maybe even next year. Brazil also has a stable, steady source of electricity like hydropower, which is going to be key for countries that want to win the future. I'm looking at you in the other way, Germany. So where could I be wrong? Well, two ways. The U.S. dollar suddenly booms. It could hurt Brazil's commodity-focused economy. And one thing that does make me nervous about this prediction is that Brazil's already had a really good start to the year, or should I say full year. The EWZ, which is the big ETF focusing on Brazil, is up something like 23% this year. But I think the momentum should continue outside, of course, of any big exogenous event. Listen, the old joke around Brazil was Brazil's the country of the future. Always has been, always will be. 
That's the joke, but it's too harsh. It just might be Brazil's time to shine. All right, now let's talk about food, because you know the price of food has gotten stupid expensive the last three years. But if you get your food delivered, it's even worse. And it's been very good, though, <coughs> excuse me, for companies who deliver your food. Your gr- Uber stock, booming, hitting a record high just yesterday. DoorDash, dashing, more than doubling so far this year. But it is probably because, or the price to get your food delivered is also popping. In fact, a new story from Kevin Duggett at New York Magazine says... It may be even worse than you think, with some prices nearly doubling in just two years. Joining us now is intelligencer, money and business writer, Kevin Dugan. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, listen, I, we knew when you order, you know the prices are high. You're focusing on things like in Brooklyn, where prices in two years or even less than that have nearly doubled. That's right. And, you know, prices here are doubling because you have the... Um, Different. You have you have tips that you add on top of that. You have service fees. You have uh, additional fees for um, for delivery. Um, and you know, I mean, essentially, this is money that used to be paid for by the restaurants themselves and has now been shifted over to the customer. So now the app companies are taking it both from the customer and from the restaurants. They are still, and that's key too, because a buddy of mine who owns just he owns just one restaurant, um, or used to, he so recently sold it was saying that he still pays more, the customers who dine in still pay more than they should because he's also still subsidizing the cost of delivery, even with the added delivery cost. Is that true? Absolutely. So in New York, the uh, maximum that uh, any of the companies can take just for delivery is 23%, but that doesn't include the other charges that uh, can be for advertising on the apps or anything like that. So some uh, restaurants, they are losing money on orders. And uh, the only way for them to be profitable overall, and we're talking razor thin margins here, the only way for them to be profitable overall is by holistically raising the cost for everybody. It, yes, it is truly remarkable. And it's and you focused in your piece, which, by the way, I'll post out. And I urge everybody to, to go read, whether you live in Brooklyn or whether you live in Boston, wherever you may live. I think it's probably all the same is that it seems to be hitting kind of the lower end, maybe a little bit more. What I mean by that is like sort of a traditionally lower cost meal, a la fast food or a quick service restaurant with like a Chipotle where the order was twenty dollars a couple years ago. And it's, you know, thirty eight now, this is not a small thing for people that may not have a lot of money and the ability to go out because they've got young children or whatever it may be. That's right. I talked to uh, someone who uh, she orders a, a, you know, a burrito bowl every once in a while and started noticing that the cost of it was twice as much. Um, I talked with researchers who looked at the price of Big Mac deliveries around the country. And it's not just New York. You're right, because in places like Salt Lake, in places like Philadelphia, um, in places like Tucson, uh, the cost of getting the Big Mac delivered a mile away was triple if you were just walking into the store. Well, they, they, it seems like they're saying that they, maybe they don't want you to order the delivery. Uh, we'll let you go, Kevin. I also learned tonight I did not know that you can apparently pay to bump up in the line so you get your food first so it's actually warm. Amazing stuff. Kevin Dugan of New York Magazine. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Brian. All right. Coming up. So you're saying there's a there's a chance. That's what turning five bucks into half a million dollars looks like. It happened to a sports better in New Jersey, and he is here next. 
a Christmas miracle happened over the holiday weekend. A New Jersey man beat incredible odds by winning a very unlikely sports bet. His name is Travis Duffner. He won nearly half a million dollars off a $5 bet. How do you do that? Well, it's a huge parlay. You have, he picked 14 different players to each score a touchdown over the weekend. It's nearly not impossible bet, but the odds are nearly 100,000 to one. And here's the moment that Travis won that big payout. Wearing a either I don't know if that's a robe or a Santa jacket. Either way, Travis was left speechless when 49ers running back Christian McCaffrey scored, barely scored, by the way, a touchdown on Monday night to cash in his bet to put the earnings into perspective. Apple is up more than 196,000% since IPO in 1980. Travis Duffner made a 9.7 million percent return in just three days of football. Let's bring him in while well, he's a financial advisor out of New Jersey. Travis, really appreciate you coming on the program. I mean, I love the gamble. That's why we do this stuff on the show. Usually you're out early. When did you know I got a chance? Yeah, it was um, I, well, I saw DK Metcalf catch his touchdown and it was pretty phenomenal catch. And right around that time, I was halfway through hitting all the bets. Uh, so I think halfway through was a pretty good idea of when to start thinking, hey, this could have a chance. I mean, I got halfway there. What's another half at that point? Now, I don't I like we do a gambling segment on the show. I like to just do the spread stuff and I don't do the player prop bets like you do. I don't know enough about the players themselves. I, and I also don't know this. Was there ever a cash out option because a lot of people if you don't sports bet you realize if you're winning the bet they'll try to entice you to cash out at a profit but less than you might win but of course you eliminate risk did you ever have a cash out option so surprisingly no i've seen plenty of cash outs before uh cash out offers i should say uh but they didn't offer it this time around and i'll be completely honest i'm happy they didn't because had they offered it before the last game i might have taken it and it would have cost me a lot of money yeah, I mean, it, it, you're a financial advisor. You're, let's say you're on. Let's say DraftKings did offer you the cash out. You bet five dollars, throwaway money, right? Less than the cost of a beer. You're twelve out of fourteen in. If they had offered you a hundred grand because they could lose four hundred ninety-three grand, would you have taken it? I don't know about a uh, hundred grand. I, I wasn't really thinking about it with twelve uh, of them hit, but once the thirteenth hit. Um, just doing basic math on, on the odds. I, I believe it probably would have been about $300,000 they would have offered me. And at that point, I definitely would have had a really now, tough decision they, they, to make. I understand, Travis, that, you know, because listen, you, you're, you're, on, you're on CNBC, by the way. You're all over the internet. Had they come to you and are like, you're some kind of guru now, and they're going to pay you to make picks? And by the way, who am I picking? Yeah, no. Uh, so it... Everyone's been great between uh, DraftKings and uh, Bleacher Report. I've had a lot of contacts with this week. Uh, they want to do some content with me coming up. So uh, anybody that's looking to tail some of my picks, they're going to be putting out some content both for uh, tomorrow for Thursday night football. And then uh, Sunday morning, there's a live stream that I'll be joining with uh, Bleacher Report to put out some more picks as well. Here's what you're going to do, because I know where you live, but I won't say it on the air, but you're going to go over to Rob. You got I don't know what you're going to do with your money is taxes. I know you got a lot of taxes. Go to Robbinsville. 
Take the whole family to De Lorenzo's Tomato Pies. And you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> go, go see Sam. Tell him I said that we, we sent you. And tip well, Travis, because you can now easily afford it. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you so much, Brian. I'll check it out for you. Yeah. Wow. 14 player prop bet hitting $493,000 on a $5 bet. Travis, very happy new year to you. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for Last Call. We'll see you tomorrow night, and I'll see you on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. Shark Tank is next.